This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for setting aside some time today. I'm Sandy Walthall, your host for today's podcast. Joining me is Patrick Suprensky with NewQuest and Mike Berganzi with the Dickey McCamey Law Firm. Patrick is NewQuest Director of Lean Resolution. In addition to leading the Lean Resolution team, Patrick represents debtors in conditional payment administrative appeals and negotiations through the Medicare Appeal Council, and he provides consulting services for settlements in Section 111. Patrick is an Illinois licensed attorney, a Medicare set-aside consultant certified, and a certified Medicare secondary payer professional. Patrick remains an active member of the Medicare Secondary Payer Network. Mike Berganzi is a shareholder in Dickie McCamey's Medicare Compliance Group. In addition to addressing Medicare secondary payer issues, Mike focuses his practice on Section 111 and conditional lien issues that arise in the resolution of workers' compensation, liability, and FELA claims. This podcast is brought to you by the National Secondary Payer Network the only nonprofit association exclusively addressing Medicare secondary payer compliance issues and the challenges in both the workers' compensation and liability arenas. In today's discussion, we will be talking about conditional payment containment. Conditional payment resolution can be a long, confusing, and sometimes a frustrating process. Let's dive in. Patrick, for the folks listening to the podcast, Let's start out by, I would like for you to explain how CMS is structured when it comes to just conditional payments and tell us who are the players. Certainly. So, so Medicare is broken into four parts. You have the part A, part B, part C, and part D. And so in these four parts, You have the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services administering Part A and Part B benefits, and then you have individual entities that are administering Part C and Part D. So when it comes to Part A and Part B, Medicare has two entities that are in charge of searching and collecting conditional payments. There's the Commercial Repayment Center, CRC. They are responsible for search and collections based upon ongoing responsibility for medical reporting. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, that shortly. Um, also, there's the Benefit Coordination and Recovery Center, the BCRC. This other entity is the, the one responsible for search and collections based upon settlement reporting. So I talked about those those two things, ORM, ongoing responsibility for medical and settlement reporting, and what, what's required by carriers and self-insureds is to report this information to Medicare if it's appropriate and it applies to a Medicare beneficiary. So, so what will happen is if a carrier or self-insured reports ORM as Y, 
the commercial repayment center will run a search and collection and may send a, a collection letter directly to the carrier self-insured based upon that, that um, ORM reporting. Alternatively, if you have a settlement that closes out medical rights, the Benefit Coordination Recovery Center will also run a search and collection. So in a, in a circumstance where a case involves both ORM and TPOC, you may have a circumstance where CRC is collecting on that ORM, while BCRC will try and collect later uh, once that settlement is reported. So that, that is just in for Medicare Parts A and B. So if you have a, a, a claimant who also has Part C or Part D benefits, you're having to do a manual uh, search and uh, request for uh, charges that they would ask for uh, reimbursement separately and manually. So those are, you know, essentially the players. You have commercial repayment center, benefit coordination and recovery center handling stuff for CMS, while a Part C or Part D may be an independent entity that you're having to contact for lien resolution. Well, it certainly sounds that the process is a little confusing and, and uh, CMS could have uh, um, maybe narrowed down the players, but there's um, many entities that we have to deal with and steps that, that carriers and self-insureds will have to go through. So now that we know the players, Michael, will you talk about what is a conditional payment? Let's, let's go back um, and, and talk about why are we having to deal with these people? What is a, a conditional payment? Sure. Uh, Medicare is known as the secondary payer. So what that essentially means is Medicare will step in and pay when payment's not made or, or can't be reasonably expected to be made in those specific cases that we're going to focus on today, the, the workers' comp, the liability cases. So in those situations, uh, they're called conditional payments because they paid for treatment. And if there's some primary payer, some worker compensation insurance carrier, um, uh, a plaintiff, someone who should have or they believe should have paid for that treatment, that is what these charges are going to be assessed or asserted against. To take a step further, how we get then from those charges to those charges being matched up and asserted is CMS relies on what is reported through Section 111. So this is just feeding off of what Patrick had just said. It, again, it depends on the case type, but in your traditional accepted workers' compensation case, once you click ORM yes, it's going to ask you or it's going to make you report certain injuries for that claim. So let's just say a broken leg claim, you're going to report right leg fracture if that is in fact what is being asserted or accepted as industrial related. So what CMS is going to do then is they're going to look at that ICD code against all the charges they paid for that individual from the date of injury uh, to present, and they're going to pull identical or even related claims. So maybe if they see something for the right hip, that's going to be close enough to that femur uh, or that, that broken leg claim. That is what they're going to sort of target as the charges to assert against you. So everything you're going to see in the context of conditional liens, uh, and frankly, for part A through D, is going to be based on what you, the carrier, the plaintiff, uh, or even the defendant, is reporting uh, through Section 111. And I should clarify, I keep saying through Section 111. There are actually other ways, even though that is sort of the primary and preferred way. 
I mean, there's certainly situations where we call in claims or the plaintiff may call in claims. So basically they use the reported ICD codes to match up what was reported by the providers to figure out what they're going to assert against you. And that becomes the basis for the conditional lien. Okay, and so to clarify, at, prior to settlement, the CRC would be the one, the, the entity, the player that we're dealing with in trying to uh, obtain the lien and, and work out the lien prior to settlement. Is that correct, Patrick? Uh, yes, so, so the, the recommended practices, if you're anticipating that settlement, you, you want to try and obtain the lien estimates prior to that settlement and then resolve those accordingly. And, and part of that reason is just to make sure you, you understand what your exposure is at that point. Um, this also allows the parties to uh, you know, talk about the liens and, and work you know, together to, to get this resolved or at least to come to an agreement as to who's going to ultimately you know, pay for them if, if Medicare or the lien holder doesn't back down. And so, you know, having that sort of understanding prior to settlement is part of that process. So um, if you can resolve those liens before settlement, it, it also makes a, a faster transition of settlement, payment, and closure of the file, complete closure of the file. So you're not spending, you know, those additional resources um, uh, working, you know, after settlement. So after settlement, the, the players that we're dealing with is the BCRC which is a different group with a different address and a different telephone number, correct? Correct. So what can happen, what can happen though is, you know, that, that after settlement, when you say that, that, that depends on what's happening with the, the Section 111 reporting. Because if, if you terminate ORM and also report a settlement, you could have some overlapping situations from the Commercial Repayment Center and the Benefit Coordination and Recovery Center. That, that's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up, Patrick. Yeah, it adds to the confusion uh, to the parties trying to settle the case because, you know, that for some reason, you know, there was that time where everybody believed there was just, you know, this one final demand that comes after settlement. And, and really, that isn't the, the case. And so, the, you know, there needs to be that sort of learning curve to recognize that Medicare is doing more than just trying to collect based upon settlement in these ORM circumstances. That, that's a great point. I can't tell you the number of times that we have requested a, a conditional payment search through the portal. It shows no lien. We negotiate the file based on that. And then lo and behold, after, after the settlement is reported, we get hit uh, or the plaintiff gets hit with a, um, a large lien at times. So very, very frustrating. Back to our Section 111 reporting, CMS is supposed to review the ICD-10 codes that the carrier or the defendant or the plaintiff, the, the codes that are reported to CMS. They're supposed to match that, that injury, those ICD codes, and compile a lien that is similar in nature to, to the injury reported. But we're seeing, my experience, is the tend to throw every payment they've made after the reported date of injury up through the date of the conditional lien that they send out. Um, in your experience, Patrick, what are you seeing? I am also seeing uh, something very similar. And, and what 
um, we've been learning through Medicare through their town hall meetings is you know, their presentations is that there's a, like a, a computer system or grouper or some sort of uh, software that is searching the bills and identifying what is purportedly related to the claim. And, and what we've seen over the past, you know, at least five years is that that system really fluctuates. And so there are times where we see it, it's actually kind of accurate. I mean, we, we are seeing it, you know, points in time, like time periods over a specific year where the charges are, are you know, pretty close. Um, but most of the time we, we've seen this um, clearly unrelated diagnosis codes being put on these payment summary forms and asked for reimbursement. I mean, the, there was one I was just looking at yesterday where the, the carrier self-insured reported uh, M54.5, which is a low back uh, condition. And, and many of the charges listed on Medicare's payment summary form was for, for it was like a D, you know, uh, 68 something. It was a, an immunization or a viral immunization code. And so I, I have no idea how Medicare can match some sort of viral immunization diagnosis code with low back. Like it, there, there is no connection there. And so we're, we're seeing that sort of play out. And it's not very clear who's in control of that software or how it's being used, but it, it certainly is not as accurate as I think uh, everybody would expect. Um, and so it, it really uh, requires the industry to push back and uh, file those appeals through the administrative appeal process. Mike, are you um, having the same experience, something similar to what Patrick is seeing? Yes, I am. I, uh, I tend to notice uh, there's something called a conditional um, payment notice that is usually issued before the demand. Uh, it says on the specific form, this is not a bill. There's usually about 30 days, but again, interest doesn't accrue. There's no real um, repercussions but it tends to be a precursor to a demand. And similar to Patrick, I have just seen when things get a little wonky, that tends to be the form. Um, similar to him, I was just doing one again with your lower back and there was just every heart related uh, heart, heart attack. All, all this heart treatment for whatever reason gets pulled in. Uh, and again, ends up being just a huge number that even looking at the sort of related ICD codes, you just can't make sort of any sense of, of how that got pulled in. Um, the only other thing I should say, maybe I should have said it in the prior section is um, some advice would be, be very specific when you're reporting things um, to sort of avoid jamming yourself up. Um, for example, some people, if you use something very generic like muscle spasm or general muscle pain, you're going to invite a large family of charges. But again, that certainly doesn't explain the situation that, that Patrick and I were just talking about where it is just a mountain of codes that seem to have no relation. And, and what causes that sort of software to do that, I don't know, but I also agree with him. It tends to, to ebb and flow. I won't see it for a while and then we'll see an avalanche of it. That's a good point in terms of section 111 reporting carriers that use a software to pick up ICD codes off of bills need to be very careful of what they are reporting and it probably should be reviewed. I see the contractors are very aggressive collecting conditional payments and it's hard to dispute 
um, sleep apnea if you've reported ORM for sleep apnea by mistake. So something to consider. So Patrick, it's clear that CMS routine, routinely adds unrelated charges to the lien. If can you walk us through the process, um, your best practices, what how you recommend someone should handle a dispute? Yes. Yeah. So um, as as Mike was saying, um, you know, there's that conditional payment notice that that comes out sometimes uh, when you reported ORM or that TPOC uh, reporting. And so what what will happen is that notice comes. You have 30 days to dispute that. If you dispute the notice, Medicare is supposed to review that dispute and then issue a decision. That, that decision comes in the form of an initial de determination. If, let's say, you've disputed all the charges and Medicare removes those, you'll get a, you know, it's sometimes it's like a case resolve letter or a fully favorable uh, redetermination letter. Um, but, but once that initial determination is issued, that's the Medicare demand that is the, the agency decision that drives the, the collection process moving forward. So you have 120 days from receipt of the demand to appeal it. Medicare's regulations presume receipt in five days. So technically you have 125 days from the day of the demand to file an appeal. If for some reason you, you don't receive it or you receive it late, um, and you are still filing within that 120 days, that, that's appropriate. And so it, it's you know, truly 120 days from receipt with that five-day presumption. Once you appeal the demand, Medicare decision at that point is going to be called the redetermination. And you have 180 days to appeal the redetermination. That appeal is called a request for reconsideration. And that goes up to what's called the qualified independent contractor. The qualified independent contract will issue a reconsideration. And then to appeal that, uh, it's called a request for hearing with an ALJ. And you have 60 days uh, to appeal or request for a hearing from an ALJ uh, from a QIC decision at that point. So, so it goes from you know, 120 to 180 days down to 60 days. And then if you're unhappy with the ALJ decision, you then can appeal to the Medicare uh, Appeals Council and you have 60 days to do so. If you're then unhappy with the Medicare Appeals Council decision, you may have a right to ask for judicial review in federal district court. And that, that allows uh, the district courts to, uh, or at least allows the parties to exhaust their administrative remedies before proceeding uh, into district court. Now, now let's say you, you've missed one of those deadlines right? You miss that 120 or the 180 days. There may be additional options you can use to, to still dispute those charges. And, and that can come through what's called a request for an extension. And there you're telling Medicare sort of the reasons why you're filing late. Um, or you, you may have this option under the reopen regulations to file a, a reopen request and ask Medicare to issue a revised initial determination. Thank you, Patrick. That's good information to know. So, Mike, for our listeners, what when you're when you're disputing a conditional payment, let's say you have this low back injury and heart-related charges, what documentation, what advice do you give the listeners to set themselves up for a successful uh, win on the dispute? 
what are the steps you'd recommend? That's a good question. The first is obvious, uh, and Patrick just touched on it. The first is make sure to the best extent you can, get it on deadline. If you miss the deadline, he, he mentioned a few avenues, basically requesting for an extension, but that is going to change the argument from these charges aren't related to here's the reason you should not continue to throw my dispute out. So step one, review those charges. Try not to wait till the day before, hoping uh, you're going to mail it in time. But assuming you have it within the dispute period, the first thing I generally will do is uh, obviously review the ICD codes. First, make sure what you reported is showing is reported. Uh, believe it or not, I've done some disputes where for whatever reason, we'll notice, hey, CMS is asserting our reported diagnosis differently than what we provided. We'll send something in, they'll say it's a glitch in the system. So review the charges they're saying that you've listed as accepted through section 111, make sure that matches. The second step is then usually looking at the charges or the ICD codes that these providers picked uh, to determine what their uh, treatment was, uh, again, going back to say the low back injury, I'm going to say, okay, what is first the primary code, which is the first in bolded code? Um, does it relate to the right knee? That's going to be a flag for me to highlight this one or for whatever reason, look into it further. Once you've gone through all the ICD codes, another thing I like to do is usually in their payment summary forms, the next field over is the DRG code. What this is, is as opposed to listing the ICD codes, it's not always filled in, but it's listing what treatment happens. So sometimes you'll look at a code and think, oh, this is right on track for low back, but it'll be L160 or, or, or something like that, where you'll look it up and it'll be, oh, looks like the, the doctor is indicating he dispensed a wrist brace or he did a carpal tunnel release. And again, that is a huge key for you to say, okay, even if there is low back being asserted here, this doesn't appear like it is related. So once you've gone through the codes, the ICD and the DRG, um, you're usually making a list to figure out which ones you're going to, what we would call uh, dispute is unrelated. You're gonna have, certainly in most cases, you'll have a situation where some of these treatment codes are going to have the low back and they're gonna have something else. Uh, at least we in our firm refer to that as sort of a bundled argument. Uh, and even for those ones, our dispute would be, you need to, dis you need to pull these codes apart this is Medicare you're talking to, and make sure you're only disputing or only asserting the low back portion of this. So if you're in the hospital for two months, it's probably not related to your low back pain. Let's figure out what happened there. And some other sort of general housekeeping stuff is we always like to look at the payment history. Uh, you don't want a situation where, hey, wait, we paid for that treatment and it's still showing up on the conditional lien because that what that likely is indicating is the provider billed both our client and Medicare and was paid by both in, in that situation, they should have sought uh, reimbursement to Medicare. Basically, we shouldn't have to pay for that twice. You raised a good point. So if there is a bill on the lien that we've already paid, the carrier has paid, they can tell CMS or provide proof and CMS will go after the, care, the provider instead of making the carrier pay it twice. They should, and that's exactly correct. How we normally just uh, demonstrate that is I'll say, here's a copy of the claim payment history. I've highlighted the charge showing it's from the same provider on the same date. And if we have even a step further, we'll pull the actual invoice to say, hey, look, it's, it's matching exactly the ICD codes you reported. We'll cite the regulation that says, hey, they have an obligation to have reimbursed Medicare. 
once they were provided uh, or provided payment by multiple carriers. And that's exactly what should happen. The reviewer should say, okay, we should go after that provider for reimbursement because the client has now showed that they've already paid for this and should not have to pay for this twice. That's great. Thank you for bringing that up. One feature that I found very helpful is to export the uh, conditional payments from the portal into an Excel spreadsheet, open that up, make it bigger, and I can quickly look through that. And the ICD codes that are not related just really seem to jump out at me and makes my job a little bit easier to dispute the charges. I agree completely. That's sort of a new feature. Well, I guess it's probably about a year old. Uh, that I first dismissed, but I found the same thing first to sometimes give you access to the codes quicker than asking CMS to fax them over. And like you said, it really kind of puts them in a neat order, not only listing the ICD, but usually will list the description as well, which you don't normally see on just the payment summary form. I find it also, also useful to um, use that form and put my notes if I'm disputing something and give that back to CMS uh, as part of my documentation. No, I agree completely. They, they certainly seem to like when you give them back the, the same form that they, they use, or at least in my experience, they seem to like that a lot more than, uh, than we put on our letterhead in a different format. So Patrick, how would you handle conditional payments on a denied claim that has not been reported to CMS? Uh, let's say the parties have reached a compromise settlement to avoid further litigation. Uh, that settlement is gonna be over the reporting threshold of $750. What do you recommend uh, the parties do to work out potential conditional payments? So in, in those circumstances, you know, uh, if you're able to prior to settlement becoming final, so you're anticipating that settlement, um, you want to report the claim to Medicare, the Benefit Coordination and Recovery Center, and get them to start their uh, conditional payment search process. And so what should be happening at that point is you would get, uh, you know, the traditional, this is like the traditional way. So you would get the rights and responsibilities letter within usually 14 to 30 days, and then a conditional payment estimate letter, you know, within 65 days after that. So that, that would give you an estimate, and then you could identify, uh, you know, charges that were unrelated. Um, but if it's a denied case, uh, especially in workers' compensation, Medicare is supposed to be a primary payer for unauthorized providers' treatments. And that's in Me Medicare Regulation 42 CFR 411.40B2. And so that, that specific regulation states if the workers' compensation carrier, you know, if the charge is by an unauthorized provider, Medicare is primary payer for that, that treatment. So what, what you, you know, may have an opportunity to do at that point, you have the estimate, is show Medicare, uh, or if it's a, a separate entity, that Part C or Part D, show those entities that, you know, the treatment has been denied, the treatment is unauthorized, and Medicare is supposed to be a primary payer for those charges. Now, now we're, you know, we're receiving, you know, inconsistent results, you know, on that argument. Um, but we are certainly seeing a success using it, uh, that format. Mike, I work for a carrier and our reporting is quarterly. So if we have a denied case and we want to uh, work out a settlement and we just completed our quarterly reporting, our adjusters might not want to wait the, uh, the next quarter to report the, the claim. 
is there a, a process that you might recommend to handle this issue on a denied claim to work out the conditional payments? Yes, we have recently been going one of two routes. The first is we'll ask the injured worker or his attorney to call and report the claim. Again, not through Section 111, but physically call the BCRC. Um, and, and this is a process where they'll sort of ask the same questions. They'll walk you through it. What are the accepted injuries? Um, again, with the point being that once it's reported, that will trigger the normal process of rights and responsibility letter and lead to us getting a conditional lien um, sooner than the quarterly, maybe up to three months triggering that. The other thing we'll do as from time to time, the injured party will just refuse to sort of cooperate in that is we will call the BCRC and report the claim. It's, we've had mixed, mixed success with it um, because sometimes they sort of don't want to accept your reporting, you're reporting the claim without accepting liability, which is what we're doing when we're trying to report a denied claim. Again, the overarching purpose here is to get a conditional lien balance. Um, but we have had success calling it in, uh, getting a conditional lien balance without triggering ORM. Uh, and it's, it's been able to, it's been beneficial. It lets the parties know what we think or what likely is going to be the conditional lien that's either gonna get in the way of settlement or that we need to address as part of settlement. Otherwise you're sort of stuck going in blind or like you said, hoping to wait that three month, four month period out. Sorry, just to add, you know, what's important to understand is, you know, even when that demand is issued, if, if the lower levels aren't accepting your arguments, they may be getting traction at the upper levels at the QIC, the ALJ, or the MAC. So it seems the conditional payment process is almost a work in progress. If nothing is set in stone, and if something doesn't work, try, try again, appeal. Um, don't uh, just accept the lien as it is. Make Go through it and make sure it is related to your claim and dispute what is not um, owed. Any final last words on this topic, Patrick? Uh, yeah, you know, I would just say if, if the charges Medicare is asserting are not payable under your claim, it, 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 Medicare likely shouldn't be requesting reimbursement. And so you should uh, raise those arguments if you can. How about you, Mike? Uh, this is building off exactly, I think, what Patrick said uh, the time before this. Uh, my only advice would be make sure you're setting forth um, as many arguments as you have, even if it seems to the point of overkill, um, because you might be preserving these arguments at the higher level where they tend to take these more serious. Um, so just to give an example, you may have an argument that it's a denied claim that you're not primary payer. But what we'll normally do is also say, and we looked at the charges and this doesn't look industrial related. So basically you're setting out multiple avenues in case they ignore one, you've sort of saved that. And again, the more defenses that you're raising, the, the better off you're gonna be protecting yourself if this goes further and further into the appeal process. Mike and Patrick, thank you for setting aside some time today to talk with us. And thank you to our audience for setting aside some time to listen to the MSPN podcast. And next week, stay tuned. We're going to be talking about liability MSAs, and this will be hosted by Raja Fumagali. Monica Williams, I am co-chair of the membership committee 
I'm here to talk about MSPN membership advantages. One of the biggest questions that we have is how can membership help my business and or provide professional opportunities? Membership provides an excellent opportunity to network with stakeholders in the business of Medicare secondary payer compliance. We have attorneys, doctors, nurses, claims examiners. We have CEOs and COOs of major corporations involved in the organization. Joining Medicare Secondary Payer Network allows you the opportunity to join committees like the Data and Development Committee, where we look at the data, we go through CMS submissions. We also have an evidence-based medicine committee, membership committee for which I'm on, communication in our most recent conditional payment committee, calls a monthly and gives every member the opportunity to participate, getting the most current information, finding out what others are experiencing in the organization, being a part of the solution to our ever-changing industry. You can post jobs on our website as a member. And you can also, as a member, look for job opportunities. Our annual conference and now starting with podcasts. Most articles can be sent out by members and corporate partners that are posted monthly. Consider being a corporate partner. Benefits are free for annual conference registration. You get the booth for the conference and sponsorship opportunities. Remember, membership gives you a voice in your organization.